Um, while people are trickling in, let me review very quickly. It will help me to review, and I think it'll help us as we jump in here to review uh, what we've done the past two weeks. Uh, be- because May's a little bit shorter, I only get three weeks this year for my teaching. Uh, this is my last week, so I'm going to try to stuff a bunch into this. Um, so I had a long sermon. I'm probably going to have a long Sunday school message. It is what it is, one of those days. Um, Here's, here's where we've been. In a post-Christian society, Christianity is no longer something, certainly it's no longer, uh, it's no longer something that is just assumed. I would say that uh, has been gone for a long time. But in a post-Christian world, Christianity is no longer something people don't understand It's something people don't want, and that's a big difference. So before the gospel reaches a culture, it is something that the people don't know. They don't understand. They haven't heard it. And it's a lot of trying to help them understand the good news of the gospel. In a post-Christian world, it is something that has been understood, has been internalized, has been externalized through, through the foundation of an entire society, and has been rejected and is no longer something people want. And because of that, we have to think, or I would say rethink, how we reach the world around us. That's where we are, a post-Christian secular world that is hostile against the gospel. And if you'll recall, um, I'll sum it up very briefly. What I've done in the last few, last two weeks is first I help understand, help us understand uh, what has been lost in our new secular world. Uh, last week I helped us understand what replaced that in our new secular world. So um, what I said was that the lo- loss of orthodoxy has been replaced by the law, lo- or by, has been replaced by orthopraxy. Meaning orthodoxy, what is true, no longer matters as much as orthopraxy. Is it, does it work? Is it beautiful? Is it embodied? Or do I see it being practiced? Um, I said that the loss of objectivity has been replaced by hospitality. Meaning we no longer can assume moral absolutes or logical absolutes. You can't just introduce yourself to someone and logically talk them into the gospel based upon a shared objective moral stance. You now have to do hospitality, bring them into into your home, get to know them, let them get to know you. It's not just arguing people into the faith anymore. It is through the door of love. And then I talked finally that the loss of authority has been replaced by identity, meaning um, authority used to be respected, both ecclesial authority, the church as an institution, or expert authority, the ordained vocation, or even to to some degree your authority as a Christian. People respected that, wanted to hear it. No longer the case. Now all authority, not just Christian authority, but all authority has been replaced by the narrative identity which is I am my own authority and my life's quest is to find myself, discover myself, these types of things. So um, we've talked about what what has been lost. We've talked about what has replaced that. And the whole purpose of that 
was to help you understand the new world that we inhabit and to set you up for a new evangelism strategy around this new world that we live in, which is what I want to do today. I do not think you need another evangelism track to run on. That is to say, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of programs that can help you outline the gospel to people. You don't need me to write a new one of those, okay? You don't need a new track. You don't need a new presentation to give. What I think we need and what I don't think is out there much is a new how-to strategy, a new track for how to do evangelism in a secular post-Christian age. Rather than a content track, I'm going to give you a strategy track. Rather than a message to share, I'm going to give you a, a very concrete, practical way to share the gospel message. So, I, when I started this series, I was determined to say, this is going to end in practicality. I am not going to give three high-level cultural analysis talks that leave you with nothing to really go out and do. So I'm doing this, okay? Um, Mr. Practical this morning, and it even has an acronym. Ready? The acronym, fittingly, is gospel, okay? Can you remember that? You can remember that. All right, gospel. Let me go through it. And then, um, let me go through it once, and then we'll go through it. So if you don't get it all down, don't worry. We're going to go in detail. Gospel. G, grasp your context. O, occupy your context. S, strategize your context. Then P, pursue like Jesus. E, engage like Jesus. L, love like Jesus. So grasp, occupy, strategize your context. Pursue, engage, and love like Jesus. If you didn't get those down, that's okay. We will, uh, why are you laughing at me? It's very practical. Yeah. All right. Um, The first two of these are not going to take much time. And the reason why they're not going to take much time is because that's what we've been doing this year. Uh, The first is grasp your context. And it really does start with this. Now, the reason I'm not going to spend much time here is that's what we've been doing the past two weeks. For two weeks... I have been helping you understand the new context in which we inhabit. But I do want you to understand that grasping your context is the first thing to take the timeless gospel message that fortunately transcends every context and try to force it upon a foreign context never works well. So you have to understand the world in which you inhabit. A lot of... A lot of um, a lot of what we've been doing this week is exactly that. Hopefully, if you listen to those two, you have some understanding of the new world that we are living in. But I'll just say this really quickly before I move on. All that I've said the past two weeks may not be your context. And that's an important caveat. I mean, this, I, we, are, we are a secular post-Christian world, but, you know, the, the flyover states are holding up strong in, 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 in the good old-fashioned uh, Things of the past. We're not quite there yet in the bluegrass. Um, I would say Lexington probably more than anywhere. I don't include Louisville in that. I would say Lexington probably more than anywhere. 
um, it would, would, would feel more like uh, the more modern cities of our world uh, because the university and, and um, because it is actually a very progressive city. But having said that, that might not be your kind of reason I say that is because as Abby and I have been kind of dialoguing about this, we live in Heartland and, and um, you know, our neighbors, you know, that we talk to, in a lot of ways, there's still, you know, there are a lot of nominal Catholics that appreciate religion. Uh, there's a lot of folks that, you know, would sometimes when they feel like go to maybe a broadly evangelical church. And there still is a common ground. In other words, Heartland doesn't necessarily feel like a post-Christian world to me. And so you do need to be discerning in this. But I will say this. Even if they don't explicitly feel post-Christian, Charles Taylor would argue, and I would, I would totally agree, that we're all secular whether you believe it or not. And that's a whole other discussion. But even if they don't feel like this, this hot, like, like this, I, the past two things maybe would work well in Manhattan, but they wouldn't work well in the suburbs. They work, they work better than you think. Because I, I would argue we all truly have been converted to secular. That's a topic for another day. But you do need to grasp your context. If you're taking, if you're taking the gospel outside of the West to another culture... This does not apply. They're not thinking in these categories. There's still common ground. If you're taking the gospel to a place that has never heard the gospel, it's totally different. The principles still apply, but you do need to grasp your context. So, that's all I'm saying. It does start there. We've done a lot of that work. Know the place where God has you. Understand it in and out. It's truths, it's idols, it's loves, all those different things. And then once you've grasped your context, occupy your context. Now, I don't know if I would have had this step in the process were it not for our Neighbor Love Conference. This is straight Russ Whitfield's discipleship of me. Still every once in a while texting me saying, hey, you hanging out with your neighbors? So um, here's, here's, here's what I learned in the value of our Neighbor Love Conference. And again, the reason why I don't have to take much time to talk about this here is because we just did a conference to equip you on it. If you weren't there, you can go listen to it. But a crucial part of this is to renounce the individualism of our age that is um, put on steroids via technology to where you're connected all over the world to everywhere to maybe just people like you and social media and whatnot to renounce all of that spirit of our age that drives into your garage and closes it and goes inside and you never know the context. You can grasp the context all you want, but if your neighbors don't see you and know you, it is meaningless. It really does have to start with what Russ held out to us as a vision at the Neighbor Love Conference of you have one community, you have one parish to use our language and the historical church language, that you occupy like it's your job. In our day and age where authenticity is king, where relationships are valued, people have to know you before they will listen to you. People have to see you walking the neighborhood, in the local restaurants, in the local coffee shop, in the grocery. People have to see your presence occupying the context before they will ever listen to you. I, I, in fact, confess the conference, this is a struggle for me. This is, this is, this is where Mark's gold. Um, they, they, they call him the mayor of Heartland. I mean, it's just everybody knows this guy. And he goes to the pool and he works and Keaton's better than Keaton's here. Keaton's better than him. Keaton's the sheriff of Heartland Pool. Uh, he just... He's wired, but just everybody knows him. Everybody knows. They think he's the pastor of the church, the senior pastor. They don't even know who I am. And, uh, you know, and he's nodding. And <laughs> he said, I like it that way. Um, 
But the point that the point is, is that that just good old fashioned Mayberry stuff is so huge in our day and age. Our, 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 people are longing for that, to just see you out and know. So, so listen, you got to know your context and your context has to know you. You have to occupy it, be present, fully engaged in your context. Don't always just go to the cool restaurant downtown. Go to the cool restaurant in your parish. It may not even be a good restaurant. Just go to that one. Don't go across the city because there's a better grocery store option. Go to that one and go to the same teller. Here I am again. You know, I've taken this seriously. And so like, it's like, this is, since the conference, it's been Shamrocks, Ramsey's, and Drake's over and over and over and over again. And I'm getting really tired of their food. But, but, but I'm starting to know everybody in there. And, and it works. So anyway, occupy your context. All right. Now let's get into some more content here because we've already done a lot of that work. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I'm looking at my clock. I can't. This is just, I'm sorry. We are going to, when I pray here, you have to run out of the sanctuary if you went to the first service. And you have to immediately transition your hearts if you're going to the second service because I am going to go late. I'm looking at it as 1045. So let's see what I can do here. Strategize your context. Here's what I mean by that. In my experience, if evangelism is left open-ended as kind of to this nebulous, organic thing that will just happen, it never happens. Have you noticed that? We have to get strategic, especially because strategy is no longer a canned presentation to as many people as possible. That was the old strategy. Now the strategy is hospitality, as we're going to see in a moment. So you have to be incredibly intentional with your evangelism. So if you're, you know, if you're in campus ministry, um, you know, that's going to look much bigger. Perhaps you just say, all right, that fraternity house. Or, you know, Mac can say, okay, these high schools or whatever. It could be much bigger. And for me and Mark and stuff, it could be much bigger. But for you... The normal, I've got a job, I've got kids, I've got a lot of responsibility. Here's the strategy. You, have, you grasp your context, you have occupied your context. I want every single person TCPC to choose three people that you are going to strategize. Can you give me three non-Christian relationships that you are committed to? Now, some people are turned off by the concept of intentionality and strategy, like selecting people to evangelize because it feels like you're turning them into projects. To this, I would respond, absolutely, you're making salvation of their souls your project. That's what Jesus did for you. Before the foundations of the world, he chose you to be his project of salvation. By name, strategized your salvation. But though he is incredibly intentional and strategic, his love is perfectly genuine. And yours can be as well. You are choosing through three people not to like manipulate and give a presentation to that they're not ready to hear. You are choosing three people to authentically love. And nobody dislikes being the project of love. I have never met somebody who said, boy, I hate being loved. I hate being served. I hate your kindness. Everybody loves that project. So it will come down to how you go about this. But being intentional does not autom- automatically turn this into a disingenuous affair. The point I'm trying to make 
is that specificity, intentionality is very important to evangelism these days, which is why I've included it as its own process. You can't just walk around your neighborhood occupying it until you finally just say, all right, I'm, you, you, and you, I'm going to start going after. It begins with prayer. Ask God whom he is calling you toward and then discern his providence the answer. Whom has God inescapably placed in your life? Perhaps a coworker, a neighbor, a family member. Whom has God given you compassion for? Whom has God given you favor with? You just get along. It's fun to hang out with. Who will relate well with your story, your struggles, your idol? Who's in a similar stage of life? Who's captured by the idols that captured you in your story? God will show you, but I'm asking you to strategically choose three evangelistic relationships out of your context, okay? Now, what are you going to do with them? First, you're going to pursue like Jesus. Now, for some, this might mean initiating someone for the first time with someone for the first time, and it might be your neighbor, and that might be humiliating. You are allowed to knock on the door of the person next to you and say, I am so embarrassed. We've lived next to each other for this long, and I've never introduced myself. I am so sorry. (laughs) Um, And the longer it goes, it feels more awkward. And I'm just going to break the awkward barrier now. I'm Robert. (laughs) Can we hang out sometime? (laughs) It might be talking to somebody for the first time. Or for others, it might be taking a long-standing friendship or something that's already there and guiding it into a more intentional, serious direction. But no matter the situation, I think we need direction on how to cultivate intentional relationship with unbelievers. And there's certainly no greater example than the Lord Jesus himself. So what principles can we learn from the pursuit of Jesus? I am calling hospitality pursue like Jesus. I think he is the embodiment of hospitality. When you read the Gospels, you will find two fundamental ways that Jesus relates to others. He loves them in their story and invites them into his story. And these two ways are the way we are called to evangelize unbelievers. First, we love them and their story. Consider the wonder of the incarnation. That Jesus didn't have to do it that way. But he chose to do it that way. He entered into our story, our history, our context. And it was there on our own turf that Jesus introduced himself to humanity just like we know it. The implication is that evangelism does not begin with inviting non-Christians to come to church with you. Evangelism does not begin with um, you inviting them to get wrapped up into your story. Evangelism begins with incarnation, pursuit of others. We don't expect others to come to us. We don't even invite them to come to us. We go to them. We love them. And above all, we discern the needs that exist within their story and sacrificially meet them and serve them in that. Meaning you're just on the lookout for ways that you can enter in and meet needs just like Jesus did. Mow their lawn, babysit their kids, cook them meals, serve, 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 and serve some more. Let them feel your love in such a way that they just don't really know what to do with you. But Jesus did not simply love others in their story. This is very important. He also invited them into his story. Ultimately, his incarnational love and service gave way to his most famous two words. All right, follow me. Jesus joined our ways 
to demonstrate his ways. He invaded the kingdom of this world to bear witness to the kingdom of God. He entered our story to invite us into his story. And the same must be true in our evangelism. We enter into their story, but we are also intentional to let them see our story. We do this by living our story before them and telling our story to them. This is where we come to, the, to, to hospitality, which has to be central to our evangelism. You are constantly creating occasions to invite them into your home and life. Instead of eating dinner alone, watching the game alone, running errands alone, enjoying your favorite hobby alone, ask them to join you. All you're doing is creating opportunities for them to watch you enact your life, the story of Christianity. It must be said that inviting them into your story means that you have to have the courage to be bold and authentic with your story. I have discovered that many Christians are afraid to be who they are before unbelievers as if evangelism requires you to hide who you are at first and then bait and switch them. That's a very counterproductive strategy in a culture that values authenticity. You will lose them immediately. Don't be afraid or ashamed to let them watch you live out the Christian life. Both its joys and its struggles. Remember, our culture no longer asks, is it right? They ask, is it beautiful? Is it compelling? Let them watch it and see how beautiful and compelling it is. I think of Josh, Josh, uh, what's the name of the thing you do, Josh? With students? Yeah. No, I know the name of your ministry. What is the thing you're doing with students? The, you, the singing thing. Okay. <laughs> yes, cutting edge stuff, but it's brilliant. Okay. When did campus ministry turn into this? He gets unbelieving students together and they, they, they read a psalm and they sing a hymn. And then they just say, what, is that? what did you think of that? You know how weird that is? But college students find it compelling, don't they? They're like, this is, this is cool. This is authentic. This is real. Wow, this is mysterious. What is going on here? Right? It works. Let them see. We have, our family has a little liturgy that we do before our, our dinner. And it, and it even ends up with us holding hands and singing the doxology. So, so you know what we do when we have neighbors over for dinner? We say, hey, this might be a little awkward for you. Um, this is just something that we do uh, as Christians, and you can participate if you want. You can just sit there, take it in, whatever. But we do our liturgy. We hold hands. We sing the doxology. Of course it's awkward, but this is us. This is our story, and we're letting them watch us and witness it and see how beautiful it is. Another good thing to do is to actually let them in on your Christian struggles. The, please, eliminate from your mind the... I can't struggle or be imperfect in front of them because it's being a bad witness. That is the complete opposite of the gospel. You let them in on, you're hanging out, um, catching up, you know, you see your neighbor get home from work, catching up. Hey, how's it going today? Oh my gosh, man, I just had the toughest day at work. I lost my cool. Um, you know, my wife and I are really struggling. We're needing to, um, we're really needing to just believe the promises that Jesus can forgive and heal a marriage. We're getting some help with that. You start talking like that, 
Instead of like, I'm just showing you a moral life and hoping that you'll find that compelling, boy, they will, the gospel becomes beautiful. So letting them see your story is what I'm trying to say. Um, meet them there and then in hospitality, invite them in. All right, engage like Jesus. You have three people that God has laid upon your heart. You're praying for them. You are pursuing them, practicing hospitality, doing it like Jesus did. And it's at this point where every evangelism typically stalls. You say to me, I'm so good at, I can, okay, I can, I got it, I got it, I got it. I can make friends, I'll have them at home, we'll have a dinner party, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Here's what we have to understand and accept about evangelism. There's no way around it, okay, people? It's unavoidably a polemic affair. At the end of the day, you are trying to persuade someone to believe what you believe, to trust what you trust, and to love what you love. And this is the component of evangelism that I think we fear. Evangelism would be easy if it was only relationships and no persuasion, but it isn't. In its most basic form, it is trying to convince others that you have something they don't have, but you think they must have. We do this whimsically, sensitively, respectfully. The gospel witness does not assume um, a, an air of offensiveness outside the gospel itself, but yes, a gospel witness does assume some form of confrontation, and this is the component we typically fear, particularly in our culture. I truly believe that the cross we must bear in order to share the gospel in the 21st century post-Christian American context, that, by the way, you do know there's a cross to all evangelism, right? It cannot be shared without a cross, meaning... Um, meaning every culture, every time throughout history to share the faith brings a cross, brings some form of persecution. Do you know what I think ours is? Awkwardness. You got to bear the cross of awkwardness. You got to bear the cross of breaking out good old social graces and I'm just weird. You got to break through that. Because, listen, well, let's just put it in perspective. Perhaps you're going to have to break the tolerance norms of postmodernism. Perhaps you will be labeled as that weird coworker or neighbor. Perhaps you will offend some people. Perhaps they'll think you're weird or awkward or lose some friends. So be it. Evangelism costs, but good gracious. The Bible tells us the gospel is offensive no matter what culture. Most cultures, that's imprisonment, that's martyrdom, that's arrest, that's losing our families, that's going underground. We can bear the cross of awkwardness, can't we? We can get a little awkward. And this is why I'm including it as its own step in the process. At some point, at some point, our pursuit like Jesus must turn into engage like Jesus. I am crafting the confrontation as engage them like Jesus for a reason. Let him be the model of engagement. And Jesus did something amazingly that I'm telling you works incredibly well in our culture. You know what he did? He asked questions really well. If you could just turn evangelism strategy away from, I've got a presentation that I've got to get you to listen to, and turn it into profound, deep, penetrating questioning, not only will our culture love it, they love those conversations, but it'll be incredibly effective I told you this, um, I don't know which week it was, one of the weeks, but I told you, you know what our secular age loves? 
that first question of Jesus and John, first words out of the mouth, John, what do you want? I wonder if you had a dinner party and you had your friends over and you said, top of conversation at the dinner table, what do you want? What are you after? I wonder where that would go, right? You could just honestly, I mean, I can help you if you want some questions. Maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do like a follow-up blog and like get some like some thought-provoking questions and maybe you could take the conversation. Maybe I'll re- resource this. But really, you could just, man, just go to Jesus. He says, what do you want? What would it look like to say that? Or how about with this? When he's talking to, uh, when he's talking to the lame by the pool and he says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? What a question. Do you want to get better? What a question for our society. How about this one? Do you believe? That's what he said at the resurrection scene. Do you believe? Hey, what do you believe then? You know, we've been hanging out. We've been friends for so long. It's obvious to you I've got this weird, awkward Christianity thing going on. What do you believe? What do you believe about spirituality and God, these things? You can steal from Jesus his questions, but there are many you could ask. Um, What's your story? Questions like that. But my point is, is that you engage them. You turn this thing from, we're just really good friends that have a lot of fun together and do the social thing, hospitality thing. We're going to talk about some stuff. And I think the best way to shift that relationship is by penetrating question asking. And maybe I'll think about something I could write to resources on that. And then, if we believe that Jesus is the answer to every question, then there is an answer to their question that you can take them down, and it's showing them that. And this I'm defining as love like Jesus. Here is the love of Jesus. Here is the love of Jesus that he showed to every single person. This is his love. Pick up your cross and follow me. What you're questioning is going to reveal is eventually their cost. You see, Jesus could walk up to somebody, and he's omnipotent, that helps. And he could know immediately, ah, rich young ruler, you're in love with your money. You're living for your money. And he can walk up and say, hey, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. All right, you don't have that ability. You've loved them. You've welcomed in their home. You've become friends. They trust you. You trust them. You've asked penetrating questions and you've gotten to know them. And what you're discerning is their cost. That Jesus is asking them to lay down to follow him. Okay? And it is unique and particular to their story. That's why authentic hospitality comes into play. I should say this before cost. I really like... I really like, to use Keller again, I really like his thing. You can Google this and find it. But I really like his thing that basically when you, when you evangelize, when you share the gospel with somebody, it is either, and they say no, it is either a um, content, cohesiveness, or cost issue. And eventually it will always end in a cost issue. Meaning you first start with, is it a content issue? Like they legitimately, they do not understand the gospel and I've got to explain it to them. And that'll obviously come up. Like they'll have completely misnomers about what it means to be a Christian. They'll think you're just a good person or something like that. So you obviously have got to explain the content. It may be a, um, what was the second one? Cohesive, cohesive argumentation. Meaning I got the content, but I don't believe it. And then there's tons of resources out there that you can have with them about their questions and stuff like that. But I'm telling you, 
Mac and I talked about this. You don't have to trace the rabbit hole down their cohesive. They may may say, yeah, I get it, but I can't believe in a God because of evil and suffering in the world. You could try to get some good answers to that. There's resources out there. That would be hard for you to get your hands on. But here's what you need to know. Even if you answered all of their questions perfectly, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. They're hiding behind the issue. And so what Keller says is you're trying to get through all of that to label their cost. And that's what Jesus did. This is how he loved people. He loved them enough to confront their cost. So, he's talking to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. I know you. You live your life according to the Pharisaical code. You are so religious. You are so smart. You think you're so smart. You know everything. It's not working. You got to be born again. You need a new birth, not a better life. He's talking to the woman at the well. Go call your husband. Sir, I don't have a husband. He said, I know. You've had five. And the one you're with now isn't your husband. He's pointing at her cost, isn't he? You've been living your life for the attention, approval, affection, care of a man. And I'm telling you, this is living water. That's what happens at the well. This is living water. You drink here, you'll never thirst again. Again, like I said, the rich young ruler. Give it up. Give it to the poor and follow me. He's always pressing in on that thing that's standing between them and following Jesus. And that's what we have to do. It has to be a pressing in until you find the barrier and then showing them how Jesus overcomes that barrier. You must become the voice of Jesus' love in their life, showing them that that cost is worth it to be a follower of Jesus. You have to become the person who is Jesus to them, as Jesus is in the gospel, who is saying, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. It takes time. It takes hospitality. It takes energy. It might be where they say, I'm done with this. And this by the way, this will happen. There will be people who's like, I can't take your hospitality anymore. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going radio silent, okay? That's fine. You're choosing three. Go pick another one. And it's not, it's, you know, it's fine. Some people will run away from the gospel. That happens. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you pursue like Jesus, if you engage like Jesus, and if you love like Jesus, defining love as graciously confronting them with the thing that's holding them back from eternal life. If you pursue like Jesus, engage like Jesus, and love like Jesus, you are going to be amazed. You're going to be amazed how captivating and compelling this will be for your friends. Okay? There's a lot of resourcing that I can do and is out there that can help you in that. In other words, I know in your mind you're thinking, okay, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, but they're going to ask a question or they're going to need me to take them somewhere that I don't feel equipped to do. What we're going to do in the coming weeks, I'm committing to doing this, is maybe put together a resource list of all the content stuff that you can use that's working really well in our day. Um, I might write something to kind of, kind of, Built the hardware, maybe, maybe need some software. But if you just go after it with that process, I, I, honestly, I guarantee you won't need content. I, I don't think you'll need content. I, I think you'll need the spirit and the gospel, which works. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that we would be known um, as 
the most evangelistic church in this city. Um, Lord, I think we all must confess that our tradition and, and our church may be not what we're known for. Um, we're known for, for uh, many good things, and we don't make apologies for those, but may it be added to us that, man, those people evangelize. I pray that every person here would choose three from their context to, to pursue, to engage, and to love like Jesus did. I pray, Lord, I pray for, you know, I pray for conversions so that um, our church community could start seeing how intoxicating it is to evangelize and watch people come to Jesus and join our fellowship. So I pray you would bear much fruit. You don't promise that. Sometimes we labor our whole lives and we don't see the fruit until we get to glory and generations later get to reap the harvest of the seeds that we planted. That might be the case, but I pray for fruit. I pray that people would get the joy of leading others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, now as we enter into worship, I pray that we would transition our hearts to be fed with the fuel that we need to go and evangelize a lost world for Christ. Thank you for these past three weeks and all that you have done and are doing in our life and in our community. I pray that it would only continue through Christ we pray. Amen.